Okay, folks, let's rip into it straight away. Uh, the world of human statistics with research director at Ipsos. They ask people things and collate the answers. Uh, Jonathan Dodd, hello. Yeah, g'day, Graham. Man, I'm looking forward to the World Cup of football. I look forward to it every time it happens. It's one of the weirdest things on the planet. Um, most people think it's just a sporting competition. It's much more than that. It's weird. It only happens in this sport, really, that um, it, it transcends sport. It's more about other things. It often is. And it's always particularly interesting living in New Zealand when people realise that rugby is not actually the be-all and end-all and it's actually much bigger, more popular sports around. Yeah, We're exactly. We're very good at some sports, but they're just little niche ones. Yeah, well, this but, is yeah. the biggest sporting competition in the world. It, it outstrips the Olympics. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and, of course, this year it's in Russia. And, Russia, and of course, if some of us older people can remember the last Russian Olympics and all the boycotts that went on there and um, there's similar controversy this time around. Yeah, okay, so we're just thinking, oh, well, we'll tune in and, and watch um, Saudi Arabia versus Costa Rica or something and not have any idea oh, what's going on. But... <laughs> oh, well, it will be if you're in Costa Rica. Um, <laughs> okay, let's have a look at what people are thinking about this because there is quite some controversy which has gone under the radar a bit here. There's, there are calls for boycotts. There are. It was interesting having a bit of a look around here because we actually asked about this and um, found out, well, interestingly, that while states may choose to boycott, not those boycotts don't necessarily match the beliefs and the desires of the people that the states represent. Mm. So, yeah, um, like 49% of Indians and 45% of Saudis and Americans think that their national team should boycott the World Cup, even though, and I've had a bit of a look around, those particular countries don't have any major or unusual gripes with Russia. I mean, America always does, but it's not like there's anything changed there. India and Saudi Arabia seem to be pretty happy with things and getting along financially. But it's countries like Poland, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, Australia and Japan, they're all boycotting or essentially um, even if their teams turn up, the, the politicians aren't. Mm. Um, but what the politicians do, I think, like normal, doesn't necessarily reflect what their population wants them to do. No. So, yeah, so you're not going to see anybody, any of the uh, politicians from Japan at the World Cup, but only 17% of Japanese people actually think there should be a boycott. So... Definitely you've got um, these places like Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, for example, where there are sort of uh, de facto boycotts. It's not like you've got huge support amongst their populace for it, but, you know, that's why we hire politicians. They, they like to believe they know best. Yeah. Who are we to argue? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a weird thing with the World Cup. It's bigger than politics. There are more uh, FIFA nations easily than there are nations in the United Nations. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, it, and it's separate from po politics at the same time. It's weird. Well, you can't. I mean, I think we all saw that during the Springbok tour, didn't we, about trying to split politics from sports? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, politics shouldn't interfere in sports, but it does. And, and so there you go. <laughs> yeah, and with the World Cup, there's nothing quite like it. I mean, what Russia might be capable of, the prestige and the honour of having the World Cup in your own country, you get automatic entry to the World Cup um, if you're hosting it. And what countries will do to, to win? Um, I'm... You know, anything could happen. Are we going to see the Portugal poisoned? No, I haven't seen it out that, but um, we all know about all the Olympic yeah. conspiracies and, and, and things that go on for the Olympics, don't we? So, mm. 
what, what's happened in Portugal. Oh, no, I'm just thinking if, uh, if Russia, if they need to get through, I mean, what, what they could be capable of. Where do things oh, have right. happened? Yeah. Well, you know, if, if my country was on the border with Russia, you know, and you see what's happening in Crimea, it might be something to think about. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah. well, Most people are playing it. I'll tell you what was interesting, though, uh-huh. um, is obviously asked about which countries people think will win in that, but we asked people um, how they're going to watch the World Cup because you know how, like, we've now got these controversies in New Zealand with Spark getting coverage for um, various sports events coming up and yep. the America's Cup and the Rugby World Cup and having to download and watch things online. Uh, well, 25% expect to watch the cup via the internet, 30% on a mobile device, 8% on a tablet or an iPad. Oh. So I think this is particularly interesting, the way things are going. Yeah, it is. Although there's nothing like that communal um, idea or feeling of gathering around and watching a game with other people. <laughs> but you can actually drive your TV from your phone, so who cares? As long as you can see it, you can do what you want. The choice well, is out there. I like, yeah, as you point out, it is more fun to watch with people. And we had 24% planning to take time off work or school to watch. 49% planning to watch with work colleagues. Mm. So I guess if the time zones don't work, because we always get used to watching things in the middle of the night, but if there's a, a big game on at one in the afternoon in the middle of work, mm. you know, I don't think many people in Germany are going to be um, sitting there studiously working when they could watch a game. No, of course. And most people thinking Germany will win, and that's kind of sensible. Their B team could win. <laughs> yeah, but could their B team beat the Brazilian B team? So mm. there you go. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, stay listening throughout the World Cup, folks, because we've got a superb World Cup correspondent and New Zealander since 1978 has never missed a World Cup match of any description when it comes to the final. So there you go. Is he still married? <laughs> yes, actually. All right. Now let's go to our cognitive biases. Stress yeah. influence tendency. Yeah, and again, this is one of those ones which sounds obvious, but the thing with cognitive biases is they all sound obvious when you describe them, but whether we're aware of them at the time and actually take take time to um, try and overcome them is another matter. Mm. And this is basically, you know, um, when you've got adrenaline going on, when anything's stressed, you tend to make faster and more extreme reactions. And, uh, you know, the animal comes out in you, and that's why you get all those silly behaviours, people, people throwing a punch or bit of road rage or something like this because once again when things are tough or particularly stressful and you've got to act fast you've got to act fast mm. that means letting the caveman take over and run away from the saber-toothed tiger rather than sitting down to weigh up all the options and be careful and make a list of things to do <laughs> meanwhile they're getting their leg shut off so um it is one of those things that sounds obvious but it, it's it's a real double whammy because it accentuates a lot of the other factors that we've talked about in recent weeks so you know there's what we call social proof tendency which is when you just do what everybody else does and i mean we see that really badly in what and um you know stampedes yeah one person starts to run and everybody runs you've got no proof yourself but you do what everybody else is doing um there's what we call deprival super reaction, which is when we really react badly to stuff being taken away from us. So you tend to attack first and snatch stuff off you and often, you know, overreact to what's going on. You feel violated. Um, you do. So, you know, and, and you, a lot of listeners may think about the times where a fight's occurred and it's over something that's really trivial. Mm. And we see this a lot when you're looking at, like, three-year-olds. You know, they'll fight over something really inconsequential, but realistically um they're just exhibiting a less 
um, a less controlled version of what goes on in all our minds, really. Yeah. Um, and then there's even what's called doubt avoidance, which is when you're stressed and you don't know what to do, you just pick something quickly because it's the act of deciding which makes you feel better, even if the quality of the decision is still rubbish. Yeah. But it's just, I'm stressed, I've got to do something. I'll yep. do what he's doing. I'll do this. It seems right. And people make really dumb decisions. Yep. Okay. So, um, so make a checklist. I think I mentioned this before last week. Making a checklist always yep. helps. Yep. Good one. Oh, just on the World Cup, a little stat. People, just, I, I think it's fair to say most people wouldn't know. Name the most overachieving sporting nation in the world. You might think it might have been East Germany when they're around or the Soviet Union or Jamaica uh, with... Cricket and athletics. Are you going by what, like World Cup appearances by population, or? Yep. And results. Uruguay, I think, is the most overachieving sporting nation in the world. They've won the World Cup twice. They've been in the semi-finals. Oh, how many times? One, two, three. Um, It's the Welsh people there. (laughs) No, it's Argentina. the no, I think it was in Uruguay where a group of Welsh people immigrated and set up their own little communities so they could speak Welsh and keep their Welsh culture alive yeah. when Wales was being overrun by the English back in the day. Yeah, and in they've Europe. had Golden Boot many times and it's all that done with a population of about hey. 3 million, I think. Well, maybe there's nothing else to do there, I don't know. Uh-huh. See, if we've got time, here's a really good example of how social norms and these cognitive biases can screw you over in football. Uh-huh. If you're um, if you're a, a goalie and there's a um, you know penalty kick being taken against you, uh-huh. if you stand still in the middle, you're more likely to save yeah. to save the goal. But if you stand still in the middle and don't work, don't move. And then, of course, the the ball is kicked to either corner. You look like an idiot because it's like, what, you didn't even try. Yeah. So statistically, you're better off staying in the middle. But it looks better if you do something. You look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to look worse. It's it's like basketball. If you do an underhand throw and you're getting a a free throw of basketball, underhand throws, statistically, uh, you'll get a better um, basket rate. Yeah. But it looks naff. Yeah. So basketballers don't do it. And these are great cases where the social pressures and the fear of how you're going to overlook lead people to taking what are actually demonstrably the worst decisions and the worst behaviours. Good run. Okay, Jonathan Dodd of Ipsos, thank you very much. And coming up, uh, the World Butterflies uh, for Enviro News. We go to the new exhibition at the Auckland Museum. Jonathan, thank you. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. At the Auckland War Memorial Museum is an exhibition opened today, Saturday, all about butterflies. People love a butterfly. Curator, Master of Insects at Auckland War Memorial Museum, John Early, entomologist. Uh, lovely to have you back again, John. Ah, oh, Kiora Graham, thanks. Well, actually, nice to be back here. I'm in your office. Yeah, that's right, and it's always good to see you and have a yak. Okay, butterflies. This exhibition, there are New Zealand butterflies, but you're really looking at um, some spectacular forms and collections. Yeah, we're looking at butterflies from across the world. And this exhibition, we call it the secret world of butterflies. So we're going to delve into some general facts and information and content about 
butterflies, not just the New Zealand ones. Mm. And it's based on this collection of butterflies that was bequeathed to us by a private collector, a gentleman by the name of Ray Shannon, who lived here in Auckland and then later down in Tauranga. He was a butterfly collector most of his adult life, and he amassed this collection. It turns out there are about 13,000 of them, and when he died, they came on to us. And I've been itching to get them out on display because they're exquisite creatures. But not only that, they're very interesting. How did he collect? By travelling all around the world, particularly in the Amazon region of South America. He went there several times, also Southeast Asia, China, Philippines. But there are butterflies from Africa, Europe, North America. Mm. There's a thing about butterfly collecting, and I think it has analogues as well, or parallels anyway, with collection of orchids and reptiles. It's kind of a psychosis. That, that, that it's, it, Was he a personality type? I don't think so. Okay. He struck me as being just one of these people who was deeply interested and he followed his interest as far as he could go. Mm. Um, he was interested in all kinds of things. He wasn't just interested in butterflies. The natural world, discoveries in the, in the world of physics, of chemistry, of genetics. He was widely read and had a very active mind. When was he around? He died in 2008, aged 91. Wow. Apparently he got interested in butterflies as a boy and there's this charming story of him chasing white butterflies around the local cemetery uh, in Hamilton, which is where he grew up. I think much to the consternation of the sexton and the mourners <laughs> because so many uh, funerals, you know, actually were in the weekend right. on the Saturday. Um, but it really took off later as a young man he was posted to the Solomon Islands during World War II. And having this interest, he went over there armed with a net and some equipment, proceeded to collect butterflies. Mm -hmm. And from then on, devoted the rest of his life to doing this. So a single man, no dependents, no wife or partner to keep happy at home, uh, he was free to travel right. and use his income to um, foster his hobby. And that's what he did. Oh, just one other thing about the collectors, and your, your man here, Ray Shannon, he seems to be no exception. If you're a butterfly collector, you've got yourself a blue moon, right? It'd be a beautiful one, there you've got it. Now, if there's a male and if there's a female, that's different. Yep, you've got those two. But they don't stop there. It's like a competition to see how many of the bloody things they can get. That irks me. I've seen trays of 150 red admirals. Do you really want more? No, you don't. And for scientific collections, no, you don't need that many. You may need to have a number from documenting their presence in a different place yeah. at a different time because where you find them one year, they may go extinct from that area and it's nice. But just collecting them for the sake of having that many, yes, there are collectors who will do that and it's part to do with the collecting Psych. Psych. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. And some too, there's a particular obsession with the rarest species they can get, the minute variations within a species. Yeah, there is this, this urge to have, mm. and, and so many collectors are driven by that. Others simply are collecting them for their beauty, others because they're interesting. Yeah. 
And the minute you start looking at something, you start seeing so many differences, and yeah. the more you find out about them, mm. it just stimulates that. Where's the mother load of butterflies in the world? Is the one for species hotspots? Oh. I've always heard Costa Rica for some reason, I don't know. Mm. The hotspots basically are the tropics in general. Okay. Because butterflies are fussy feeders, i.e. they choose carefully what plant they lay their eggs on for their caterpillars to feed on, they're fussy in that respect. Where there's greatest plant diversity is where you'll get the greatest butterfly diversity. Okay. Home run question. What is a butterfly? It's an insect with scaly wings. So's a moth. That's right. So both of them make up the insect group we call the Lepidoptera. Now the distinction between a butterfly and a moth is a completely artificial one. The butterflies themselves form an evolutionary group with a common ancestor, but the moths don't. If you want to include, go back to the common ancestor, you have to say all of Lepidoptera. While people have made generalisations like butterflies are colourful, moths are duller. Butterflies fly by the day, moths fly in the evening and at night. Well, this happens sort of for the majority of species, but there are a lot that don't do that. For example, in New Zealand, a lot of our moths are day-flying and they're relatively brightly coloured. So that doesn't work. And similarly with butterflies, you will get butterflies that fly in late in the afternoon in the dark. You will have butterflies that are very dull in colour. New Zealand has some endemic butterflies, quite a few. I don't know if we can Skype like a tropical place, but how many species do we have? Yes, yeah, certainly nothing like tropics. The number we've got depends on who you talk to. So it's around 24 or 25, I would say. Someone's been looking more recently at our copper butterflies and reckons that there are a lot of undescribed species with very restricted distributions. Mm. Whether or not that will bear closer scrutiny and perhaps some evidence from genetics or not mm. remains to be seen. But, uh, yeah, I would say around 24 or 25, somewhere in that neck of the woods. A lot of ours aren't that brightly coloured, but we do have a couple of exceptions, don't we? We're not talking the monarch that came from somewhere else, even if it's considered native now, but ones that have been here for a long time, uh, yellow and red admiral, they're kind of pretty, aren't they? Oh, sure. I think the red admiral is one of our most beautiful and attractive butterflies, simply because of that beautiful red colour on the wings, and that's a New Zealand endemic, it's nowhere else. The Yellow Admiral is also in Australia, so we, we share that, and it will have got here under its own steam, and probably most years I would think we would get immigrants from Australia that interbreed with the New Zealand population. And they eat nettles, and so go and grow some nettles. Oh, they don't care which species, do they? <laughs> I think they sort of have some slight preferences. Okay. Like the Red Admiral loves the large onga onga bush, yeah. which is a ferocious thing. I mean, I've fallen foul of it a few times. It's actually not that bad. But, yeah, most people will turn up their noses at growing that in their gardens. Mm. But if you want a Red Admiral, that's the plant to have. Yeah, because... I'm really trying to shoehorn this thing into that New Zealand natural history, mm. as you can probably tell, by the excuse of a butterfly exhibition at the museum, which started today. OK, um, how are our butterfly species doing? Are we data deficient? Are people looking out to see how they're doing? We're certainly data deficient, and there's anecdotal evidence that some of our butterfly populations seem to be much lower than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Now we don't have hard data so no one's been out counting or trying to know exactly why this is 
there are certain theories that have been advanced, but they do need some hard science and investigation to work out what's going on. The import of parasitic and predator wasps, I suppose they have made a huge impact, your paper wasp, and parasitic wasps like... I don't know if it's got another name, Terramalis puparum. Oh, it's a thing of science fiction to see those maggots inside a butterfly chrysalis. Yeah, that's right. Terramalis puparum is a tiny parasitic wasp, only, say, two and a half to three mil long. That's quite an attractive little number, but it was imported and released here deliberately once the cabbage white butterfly established back in the late 1920s. Unfortunately, that parasitic wasp is not specific to cabbage white butterflies. It likes our admirals, so our admirals are suffering from parasitism by it. The wasp hangs around a caterpillar that's ready to turn into the chrysalis and waits. The minute it molts and turns into the chrysalis, then it jumps on it, sticks its leg layer through the skin and inside and lays a number of eggs. A number? It can be 100. Uh, yeah, it's a lot. And then they will hatch into their little wasp grubs, which will then devour the contents of the inside of the chrysalis. So you don't get a butterfly emerging. After a due period, you will get anything from 40 to 100 of these little parasites will emerge yeah. and go and seek out the next one to attack. I suppose the one butterfly which has garnered some attention for its plight, and that's the forest ringlet, because people used to see it and now they don't. The admiral may be declining as well, but as, as we know, data deficient, but the forest ringlet, it's maybe our prettiest butterfly. It's got a weird kind of lifestyle and eats this bushy grass stuff and takes years to turn into a butterfly but all that aside how is it doing do we know well again data deficient is the key word anecdotal evidence people's observations keep saying that the numbers now are far far lower than they were not all that long ago i remember when i moved up here to auckland from the south island Colleague entomologists would say, oh, yeah, you can see forest ringlets out in the Waitakere's and so-and-so who lives on the edge of the Waitaks gets them in their garden. So I thought, oh, this is great. I've never seen this butterfly before. And I've never seen one up here in the Waitakere's in 27 years of life in Auckland. I think they are locally extinct. They still hang on in other places. For example, I've seen them out on Great Barrier. I've seen them in the Coromandel, but not here in Auckland. So they are diminishing. And, of course, the big question is why? And, of course, the why questions are the hardest ones to answer. I went to a website. I was searching for the forest ringlet butterfly and I saw an interesting website from Germany. And that's really weird. I went on there and I could buy one. I could buy some. Forest ringlet, our endemic from New Zealand. I went back to the website not that long ago and you can't anymore. They must have either been sold or someone's given them a clip around the ear. But that's worrisome, isn't it? It is, and it makes you think, who here in New Zealand is collecting them and sending them off to a dealer somewhere else? Or is the dealer actually travelling and collecting? But there are an awful lot of dealers all around the world. Yeah. And some butterflies of the rare species sell for huge sums. Things like Queen Alexandra's birdwing, which is a species you're not allowed to collect. It's, it's the biggest butterfly in the world. The males are the most exquisitely coloured creatures as well. And I've seen them on websites for sale. I think, again, from a German site, it was over €1,000 for a butterfly. All right. When a butterfly, it's a, it's a caterpillar, it's an insect, it does have... Those caterpillars, they have six legs, don't they? And the rest are kind of like octopus suckers. 
Yeah, they do. Right behind the head is the thorax of the caterpillar, and so there's a pair of legs on each of the three segments. So six proper legs there, yeah. and then depending on what species, it depends how many of these sort of false legs are little projections basically from the abdomen. Right. They're not on every segment, but um, they're always on the very last segment, and, but variable in between depending on what species of caterpillar or you are. Yeah. Mm. And then there's that mystery, or is it a mystery, when it hangs upside down, probably, and inside it transforms into a butterfly. What happens between the caterpillar and the butterfly? I've heard, oh, it's, it's soup. What is in there? Is, do we really know what's going on? Yeah, we do. It's hard, of course, you can't dissect things and have a good look to see what's going on because you kill it by doing so. But we do know that when it gets to a certain stage and it's time to convert into the pupa or the chrysalis, the caterpillar secretes an enzyme which digests all the cells or the tissue inside. I shouldn't say all, almost all, because there are little bundles of cells which don't get digested. The ones that do just break down into, as you call it, soup. It's a great mixture of fats and proteins and all the other good building blocks of life. And the clusters of cells that don't break down, we have a fancy name for them, they're called imaginal discs. And they're sort of, in a sense, like stem cells, except each cluster, each disc, is predetermined as to what it's going to form into. So there'll be one lot that will be uh, forming the legs, another one the wings, another one the proboscis and the mouth parts. So they will use the soup of nutrients and multiply like crazy, building up the adult structure. If you've ever watched, say, a monarch do this transformation, you can see from the minute it forms the chrysalis, it's this milky green, and as it ages, up to a couple of weeks, it gradually takes on, and you can see the form of the adult butterfly progressing inside. Admiral chrysalises, our native admiral chrysalises, they can be so many different colours, shiny silver and black, and others exactly like they're made gold, 24 karat gold. They shine. Fascinating chemistry behind that, to be so sparkly. I don't know the chemistry behind that or why there's so much variety, but it's interesting, there are quite a few butterflies whose chrysalis is golden in colour. There are even golden flecks on your standard old monarch, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. And I wouldn't be surprised that's why the name chrysalis came from the Greek, C-H-R-Y-S, root word meaning gold. The other thing too is this gold has given its name to the very early butterfly hunters in England back in the 1700s and they formed a society and they called themselves the Aurelians because some of the butterflies they caught had these golden chrysalises mm. and it comes from the Latin word for gold. So we have the Aurelians and we have chrysalis both reflecting this golden nature of a number of species. Let's talk about our Lepidopterans evolutionarily. Uh, they'll go along the line, they're all kind of moth-like, and the, the moths carry on, so it's an offshoot from moth land that is butterfly land, right? I think that's the way it goes, yeah. How come butterflies, so many of them, are so bright? Is there a good evolutionary theory that seems satisfying? Two main reasons, and both are to do with protection and staying safe, basically. The ones that have the iridescence, like the big blue morphos of the Amazon, the colour that you get changes depending on the angle. So you imagine one flapping its wings. One minute is this brilliant turquoisey blue. 
the next minute as the angle changes they're dark and you don't see much so i would imagine as they're flying and it's not been my good fortune to go to the amazon and see this myself but i think you would almost get a stroboscopic effect which is thought to be maybe confusing a pursuing bird mm. combine that with butterfly flight too because they never just fly in a straight line they zip and dart and go around at all kinds of angles to make it a bit harder. So that's that's one way, I think, of the bright colours. But the other one is to warn predators that they are toxic. Mm. And you find this right through so many of the butterflies. Their caterpillars feed on a plant that's got nasty chemicals in it. It doesn't kill them, but they absorb those chemicals into their body. Are there bullshit artists in the butterfly world that are just perfectly fine to eat, but they say his chem on the front of them? Yes, there are freeloaders who mimic these poisonous ones. In fact, in South America, there are about 200 species that all have the, this sort of tiger coloration. In fact, they're called the tiger complex. Who knows because, uh, exactly how many of them actually are toxic and how many of them are mimics and getting benefit of looking like a poisonous one. Some of them are so poisonous that they will cause a small bird to have a heart attack and die, but more often it's a case of it makes them vomit. They just taste bad, and if ever you've eaten something that's made you sick, you can't look at it in the eye for a few years, can you? No. John Early, thank you very much. Entomologist at Auckland Museum. The exhibition open today, Saturday, June the 9th, and it goes until when? For almost a year, just shy of a year. And we're not talking like Otago Museum with the butterflies flying around everywhere. This is collections, right? That's right. They're all dead ones. But we are going to have to change out the, all the butterflies twice during the course of the show because if we leave them up too long in the bright light, they will fade. Right. At any one time, there'll be around 2,000 butterflies to be seen mm. but after four months or so we'll have to change out and put another fresh lot up mm. the collection of 13,000 of course lets us do this and over the life of the exhibition maybe we'll be showing around about six to seven thousand of the total of 13,000 thank you very much john early the exhibition the secret world of butterflies at the auckland museum if you're visiting auckland do pop in it looks great fun and everyone loves the butterfly Oh, absolutely. And also, I should have said, we've got a writer and an illustrator to do a kid's book about butterflies, which we've called The Secret World of Butterflies, same title as the exhibition, and that's been launched too, and it's available from booksellers, and that'll bring a smile to your face. Always good fun, John Early. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Graham. Eugenie Sage, Minister of Conservation, uh, conducted an interview with Eugenie ahead of the last election and the other conservation uh, candidates. Um, got them all, except for New Zealand first. Eugenie Sage, well into the Conservation Ministry uh, work and getting things done, joins us for a little bit of what's gone on so far and what she expects to do in the future. Eug um, uh, Minister of Conservation Eugenie Sage, thank you very much for your time. Sure, Graham. Pleased to be here. All right. Um, last week, we spoke with the Taranaki Regional Council. They were utterly stoked that they've been given the go-ahead with a bit of a boost uh, for uh, predator eradication, and that is, um, has been high on the priority, priority uh, for um, the current administration and um, actually started by the last but yeah it was started by the last and I was delighted to be in Taranaki um, the previous national government Maggie Barry uh, had set up the 
Predator Free New Zealand Limited, Predator Free 2050 um, Limited, and that's a charitable company, not-for-profit, which gets about $24 million in funding annually, and they, for the first time, have assessed applications for funding, and I was in the very um, pleasurable position of being able to announce that the Taranaki Regional Council was the first to get a big grant, $11.7 million over five years, for their ambition to make Taranaki a predator-free region. Um, I'm impressed by the Regional Council, its vision, uh, the way it is working with iwi, hapu, uh, community organisations, wild for Taranaki. And while the, the Taranaki vision is potentially achievable because it's building on the work that's being done on the Maunga themselves, Mount Taranaki, Apuakai, uh, where DOC is leading, working with Iwi, Next Foundation and others to do quite comprehensive predator control to safeguard Kiwi, um, enable the robin to be reintroduced. And so this work with Taranaki Regional Council is on the ring plane um, around the mountain. What next as far as that goes? There are other provinces that want to put their hand up. As I mentioned last week to the Regional Councillor Stephen Hall, um, Northland, good heavens, it's a peninsula. It would uh, look as though more of an obvious choice. Uh, there are a lot of uh, groups in Northland working with Kiwi, working on some of the peninsulas, the islands up there, uh, Kiwi Connection and others to uh, improve the, the prospects for biodiversity by controlling predators, land care groups and others. So we're only going to do this if everyone gets involved and that's why the Taranaki initiative is exciting because of the commitment by the Regional Council in their long-term plan and the commitment of iwi hapu and community organisations. Okay, are you ready to hand out um, more for provinces that want to get involved in this as well? Because it's going to, I would think it'd have to be a concerted plan, something along the lines of a military operation, really. Yes, and, I mean, Budget 2018 is this government signalling that it's serious about investing in conservation. It's an extra $181 million over four years. That's the biggest increase in the Department of Conservation's operational funding since 2002. Uh, and that is an investment in biodiversity. Um, 81 million of that is going towards predator control on public conservation land, but public conservation land is only about a third of New Zealand. So having landholders as in Butanaki, as in Northland, um, working alongside the department, working alongside um, groups like Next is, is really good. All right, we've seen a 33% boost in the National Heritage Budget. Um, that's a great thing. It's uh, back to levels of about uh, something like uh, a decade ago. So hats off as far as that's concerned. What about the association between the Department of Conservation and business, which was more of the plan in last administration? Um, do you want to keep that going or look in a different direction? Well, it's going to be a slow rebuilding process because there has been a decade of neglect of cuts to natural heritage funding, the department having to go cap in hand to uh, government every time there was a predator plague year. So there was a heavy reliance on partnerships with um, corporate entities. But I think there is value when we have everyone committing to the objective of having our indigenous species and wild places thrive. Um, we are very lucky in New Zealand. 80% of our birds are only found here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, nowhere else in the world. So we've got an international responsibility and that requires a commitment by everyone, businesses, councils, uh, iwi uh, and government and communities. Okay. 
but it's uh, when, when I spoke with you, on, you wanted less reliance yeah, on that, less more of a bottom line. Less reliance on corporate sponsorship. And what Budget 2018 has signalled is that this government believes that conservation is the core uh, government business. And it's core business because it's the Crown agencies like DOC that do it on behalf of all of us. And because we can't have healthy people, we can't have a healthy economy unless our environment's healthy. Our biggest export earners, tourism and the primary sector, both rely on nature. So nature needs to thrive and for us to thrive. Okay. Do you go to Grant Robertson and try and uh, talk him round to giving you more money? How does this work? Because he's the guy with the money. Well, it was... um, It's been my focus since I first became Minister, increasing the funding for DOC. Uh, There were conversations with the Minister of Finance, and this big increase in funding obviously required the support of the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister, um, Jacinda Ardern, as well. And I think it's signalling across all three parties, Labor, New Zealand First and the Greens, in the confidence and supply agreement and in the coalition agreement, all three parties believe in the need to invest in conservation. That's why the funding um, occurred, because it's it's a whole-of-government initiative. It's fortunate that the Minister of Finance lives in Wellington, and with all the Indigenous um, vegetation in the hills and the gullies, with Zealandia, Senkaka, Teiki, Saddlebacks, uh, outside uh, Zealandia now, people know that if you invest in predator control, you do get our native species thriving. Yeah, to the extent where neighbours can actually complain about the kaka, which is such a luxury. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, I love hearing Ruru Mopok at night. I could do that in Wellington. It doesn't happen in Christchurch because they're not um, they're extinct there. Yeah, well, all right. So we need to, to have good habitats so that our native birds and insects um, and wildlife can, can all right. be healthy. The biggest lobby group in the country, I think, I'm pretty sure, Forest and Bird. You used to be a Forest and Birder. You've spent much of your life dedicated to uh, biodiversity, conservation in New Zealand. What's it like answering to them, them as a lobby group, saying we want this? Um, well, they, Greenpeace, WWF and others, uh, run very well-researched campaigns, very effective campaigns, mobilising their membership. They are part of the mechanisms of our democracy, absolutely critical to a healthy democracy and holding government to account pointing out where we could do more and pointing out occasionally where we've done okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Priorities for you in the coming years within this administration heading towards the next election. What do you want to achieve? Realistically. um, Just announced at the the weekend that international visitors will be paying double what New Zealanders pay on four of our nine great walks this summer. That's part of how do we cope with increasing tourism demand, increasing visitor numbers. Uh, We need to manage uh, the people pressure at some of our more popular sites um, more effectively. So that's a major area. Um, Working to establish a dryland park in the Mackenzie Basin, uh, ensuring that we implement that commitment in the speech from the throne of no new mines on conservation land. And the biggest commitment I have is to doing better by our wild places and our Indigenous um, plant and wildlife because they contribute to who we are, our national identity. They're critical to the way we uh, market ourselves and the way we see ourselves overseas. Um, So we want nature to thrive so that we have a healthy economy and a healthy society. 
Uh, Forrest and Bird and the others have been generally positive about the direction you've taken things. However, too slow in some regions and markedly what you said, um, mining on conservation land, um, apparently too much is still going on and you're slow to react, slow to put a stop to it. Um, I guess we've been in government now coming up seven or seven months. Uh, you have priorities. Getting the major increase in conservation funding uh, was my priority. Uh, we've achieved that now and working through a lot of the other issues like uh, no new mining. Uh, we live in a democracy, so you've actually got to talk to people. You can't just have the minister saying, halt, yeah. uh, you do have to engage because we have a democracy. I want a small ra- I'm giving a small round of applause to the scientists who put together the threatened plant list, New Zealand status report on New Zealand's threatened plants, vascular plants. Oh my word, it is a massive thing and uh, it shows that there are increased threats. This is going in the wrong direction still for it seems like hundreds if not thousands of our species. Um, I know it's you know it's just come out, but uh, how do you want to address this and turn this around? One of the first things I did as Minister was asking DOC to develop a Resource Management Act advocacy strategy because conservation land is a third of um, the land mass. The increase in funding um, through Budget 2018 means we'll be able to control or suppress predators on about 25% of conservation land by 2020, by 2021. Um, that will have benefits for a lot of our plants and the health of our forests. But we also need the department to, with its technical experts like botanists and ecologists involved in the preparation of that report, in front of councils when they are making decisions about what uh, development can happen on private land so that we're not seeing further habitat loss and further pressure on those threatened species by the areas where they live are being destroyed and converted for, um, to pine forest or uh, farm pasture. As part of the uh, boost for the Department of Conservation, um, are we going to see anything specifically addressing, or trying to reinvigorate anyway, the scientific integrity of the Department of Conservation? They had lost a, a lot of their brains trust. Uh, well, that is why um, some of the new positions, and there should be about 60 positions being appointed uh, this year, will be principal um, science policy people to ensure that there's a better connection between the great science that's done in the department and some of the policy work and to engage more with things like the uh, National Science Challenges. All right, Myrtle Rust, Kari Dieback, that has affected the threatened plant list. Where to from here on those two, uh, well, relatively one very and one relatively recent, we assume, um, vectors which are threatening, you know, turning Kauri from OK to threatened? Um, with Kylie Dieback, again, the last national government made quite a major investment of around $22 million in new tracks uh, and infrastructure so that people weren't uh, spreading Kylie Dieback with the mud on their boots. People really need to keep their boots clean. Uh, this government decided things were going too slowly, so we've uh, been led by Ministry of Primary Industries, a national pest management strategy on Kylie Dieback. That's being developed at the moment. Myrtle rust is a major problem uh, because the spread is windblown and there's a lot of science being done there, but it does seem very hard to actually stop the spread. So, yeah, these are big challenges, big biosecurity challenges, and with a changing climate and more intense storm events, we can expect to see more 
windblown um, diseases, I think, coming across. Yeah, uh, just regarding myrtle rust, uh, has the media gotten sick of it? Uh, I haven't heard much on radio or, or television. What about uh, its latest sightings? Is it spreading? Is it still happening? Are we getting reports? Um, I think because there has been a recognition that it can't be eradicated because it is so widespread, yeah. and I think because our biosecurity resource has focused on um, Embovis and the huge stress that that is putting on uh, me farmers and the industry. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Can you tell me, though, how it is, the, its status as far as spread goes? Uh, I think it has been found, yes, through their areas around New Plymouth Bay of Plenty. So, yeah, it has reached the point where eradication is not seen as feasible. Bloody hell. All right, uh, Eugenie Sage, thank you very much for this follow-up from the pre-election uh, interview I conducted thank with you. Thank you, Graham. Our pleasure. Okay. Thank and you very much for your time. We will be in touch again. Eugenie Sage, Minister of Conservation. Thank you. Thank you. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. Very good evening. The podcasts are working again. Yay! New sport and weather coming up next. On the other side of that, we venture into the world of Paul Simon.